My name is Jonathan Lehman, and you are listening to Reclamation Worship. Jason Allen, and I am your host here at Reclamation Worship, the podcast devoted to reclaiming a biblical view of worship for the church. Reclamation Worship is your anti-idolatry elixir. The headline reads, Far From United, Political Divide in America, the Worst It's Ever Been. Whether that's true or not, we can say for sure that there is political divide in our country. And if there's political divide in our country and we are wrongly placing our hope in men and women who are running for office or men and women who are serving in office, there stands to be political division in the church. So this is such an important issue and we need to think deeply about this. It's my hope that today's guest is going to help us do just that. Jonathan Lehman is the editorial director for Nine Marks. After doing undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, Jonathan began his career in journalism where he worked as an editor for an international economics magazine in Washington, D.C. Since his call to ministry, Jonathan has earned a Master of Divinity and a Ph.D. in theology and worked as an interim pastor. Jonathan now serves his church, Chevrolet Baptist Church, as an elder And he also teaches at a number of seminaries, including the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and the Reformed Theological Seminary. So let's get on over to the interview and hear from Jonathan himself. Jonathan, you serve as the editorial director of Nine Marks. Do you mind telling us what you do as the editorial director? And for those who don't know what Nine Marks does. Yeah, Nine Marks is a parachurch ministry out of Washington, D.C., kind of connected to Capitol Hill Baptist. We exist to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for building healthy churches. To that end, we uh, create uh, resources, books, articles, podcasts. Uh, we host events both in D.C. and are what we call weekenders as workshops around the, around the country and around the world. And we try to, 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 to encourage networks among church leaders. So that's what we do. As editorial director, I oversee all of our published content, whether stuff in books or stuff on the website. Either I'm helping to facilitate in the creation of it or I'm editing it. Sometimes I'm writing it. Um, and occasionally I'll, I'll also go out and speak at our different conferences. So there is this, even though Nymarks is devoted to, dedicated to pastors, there is this trickle-down effect where people in congregations are directly affected by what you do. And so I'm thankful for you and your work. So thank you. Yeah. Well, and yeah, thank you. We, 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 we do publish a number of resources for church members. So like we, we want to put tools in the hands of pastors to hand out to the church members. So yeah, uh, I hope, I hope what we do directly impacts church members as well. Great. Right. So, Jonathan, it's safe to say that you, Jonathan Lehman, love the local church. <laughs> I do. Um, I, I mean, I hope I love Jesus first and foremost, but I, I'm also learning to love his bride. Yeah. Uh, his bride has been crucial in my own discipleship and development and protecting my faith and help me, helping me to walk in the faith. Um, 
And, you know, even aside from sort of the practical things that the church does for me, uh, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't, we don't join churches just because it's good for us. We join churches because it's what we are. Right. Members of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters of the family. Thank you. Well, Jonathan, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is because of your love for the church and, and your insight on the intersection where church and politics meet. Uh, you wrote a book, How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. It was released last April, so we're not, uh, we're not on top of it here uh, at Reclamation Worship. We're, we're, there's a little lag time between the release date and, um, and the book, but this, uh, let's be honest, this podcast didn't exist back in April, so uh, we're getting to things as, as quickly as we can. But could you give us a synopsis, right. <laughs> you give us a synopsis of the book and, and tell us why you wrote it? Yeah, the book was written in response. I mean, I, in addition to my theological training and development, I also did political training and development. Uh, I have a master's degree in political theory and a PhD in political theology. So this, this has long been my field. I've been interested in it. And as a pastor of a church, looking out and seeing church members just really upset and divided by and, you know, working through this difficult political moment that we we're living in, um, you know, it's just it's just a divided moment. You think back to 1986 or 80, yeah, I think 86, when Anthony Scalia was nominated to the Supreme Court by a 98 to zero vote. Hmm. And you know how conservative Scalia is, and still he was voted by 98 to zero. Well, Supreme Court nominations now, I mean, right now, as of this recording, we're going through the Brett Kavanaugh thing, but hmm. we all know they're going to be party line votes. Um, it's, it's a divided moment. It's a contentious moment. And we feel it outside the church and inside the church. And so the book was, was written to help Christians who are tempted to put too much hope in the nation, too much hope in what might happen in the net public square. We've got to win the next election. It all yeah. hangs on that. Yeah. And it's to say, well, no, I'm not encouraging you to you know, kind of one of my main messages of the book is, no, I'm not encouraging you to withdraw from the public square. No, for the sake of love and justice, we need to engage. But nor should you think you're going into the public square to save it or to, to dominate or win the culture war. Mm-hmm. We are fundamentally, first and foremost, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. So you don't go to dominate. You go to represent. Mm-hmm. Represent Christ as you seek to do good and pursue justice for the sake of witnessing, for the sake of representing uh, the King, Lord Jesus, we go as Christians. You know, we don't we don't hide who we are. We we say who we are, and we seek good. Sometimes those are the places we can make common ground arguments. Hey, non Christians, you disagree with us here, but in all these ways we disagree. Agree here. Let's build on that, and then also we we make sometimes just you know, bold faced, Hey, look, we think this is true because God's word said it's true. So, so on the one hand, I want to encourage Christians to keep engaging in the public square for representation, justice purposes. But the other main point of the book in some ways is to say, uh, the most powerful political thing the church can do is be the church. Yeah. It's in the life of the church that we model we live out little by little, not perfectly. We're learning. We model. We live out true justice, true righteousness. Mm-hmm. So, 
this this book was written while I was a member of an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist, you know, six blocks behind the U.S. Capitol. And so we had all these people in the congregation who you know come to D.C. They want to make a difference. They're really interested in politics, and they're doing good work. Praise God! Uh, I'm grateful for their jobs. But part of our message as pastors, as Cap- Capitol Hill Baptist, is to the members of the churches: Hey, look, you're interested in politics. Uh, politics begins in the decisions and the heart postures you bear towards your fellow members. Mm. So you say you're interested in welfare reform. Are you considering and caring for the welfare of other members of this church? Mm. You know, you say you're interested in family values. Well, what, what are your family values like? You know, you, you, you say you're interested in economic policy. Well, you know, do, do you work hard for your boss as, as you would as unto Christ, not as a people pleaser, but seeking to glorify God? Mm. Um, so, so politics begins, as it were, in the congregation, in the life of the congregation, and then it's to spill outward uh, from there in our outward engagement. So it's, it's really the book is calling Christians to say, hey, number one, uh, politics starts here, and, and, and we're to be before we do, right? Yeah. Be righteousness, be justice before we do. And then second— recognize when you're moving into the public square what it is. It's, it's not a neutral space. It's, it's where we need to go and be honest. Mm. It's a battleground of gods, is the phrase I use again and again. Yeah. Each of us there on behalf of our gods. So real quick, you, you mentioned justice, and, uh, and, and there seems to be even in the church today a, a divide between um, doing good and um, how people would flesh that out. Some people think that means doing good to the body. Um, and, and then on the other side of the divide, you have folks who say, no, 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 we need to do good to the soul. And so th- this idea of uh, a social gospel versus uh, a, a soul saving gospel. So um, could you could you speak to that for just a moment as well? Yeah, sure. The phrase social justice is is a, a tough phrase because obviously it's not in the Bible, but you know, some people represent it one way, others another way. And I, th- I think people are just kind of confused by what that's all about. So I, I tend not to use that phrase okay. so much. J- justice in Scripture, as I understand it, is is the application of God's righteousness. And mm. so if, if there is a that's just like a three-word, two-word, three-word definition, applying God's righteousness. And in different domains of life, that's going to mean different things. In the court of law, what does it mean to apply God's righteousness? Well, it, it makes it, it's it's to make sure the the right people are receiving a penalty, mm-hmm. and the wrong people are not. Right in the domain of family, what is what does applying God's righteousness mean? In the domain of uh, the, the the broader amidst your neighbors, what does applying God's righteousness mean? Um, and obviously, that's something Christians should care about. Yeah. All Christians should care about. And we do that as a property of, as an outgrowth of, our justification, right? Yeah. Justified people, those who are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, seek lives of justice and righteousness. And I think most Christians today agree with that. Uh, people kind of on the two sides of this social justice debate I think if you sit down with people on either side, both will say, yes, of course, a justified person should seek a life of justice and righteousness. I think where the disagreement comes out is in two places. Number one, there's a lot of disagreement over whether or not uh, in this American context there remains uh, 
widespread and even systemic injustices, particularly in the matter of race. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think one side says yes, there's still massive problems, and I think the other side says no, no, we've 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 kind of overcome those problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Some people are so race. You got some you know wackos out there, but no, we've probably, we've largely overcome those problems. And so I think in some ways the real divide is in is in that judgment and that assessment of whether or not this country continues to struggle with widespread empirical and systemic racism. Right. And when two sides disagree, that's why you get so much fighting. One side, uh, so, so when you say injustice, the other side is going to say, well, listen, I, I don't think there is. And if you keep insisting it, it's like you're getting distracted from the gospel. Mm. Whereas the first side says, well, yes, there's widespread injustice. And, and if you don't acknowledge that and you don't care about it, then you're, you know, you're, you're, you're condoning it, you're participating in it. In some ways, this is a problem anytime, or a, a, a reality anytime, a, a group of Christians cry out injustice. You know, it, it makes people, as it were, take sides. Right. And that, that's what, in some ways, is making this moment, I think, so difficult, is there's just different opinions about whether or not there's this widespread injustice going on. A second place of disagreement, which is tied into the first, is over the question of whether or not government can offer the solution. Mm. Again, uh, I think there's a, an assumption among many, not all, many who are crying out about injustice right now, that government is, is, is one of the main, main uh, solvers of this problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas many, many of those who don't perceive widespread systemic injustice as an ongoing reality in American life, uh, don't see government as the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, and so when the first side says injustice, the second side says, you're just imposing your politics on us. Mm. Um, and then that's, that's what's making this whole situation so inflammatory, or that's part of what's making this situation inflammatory at the moment. Now, that's me trying to give you the two sides without taking sides, <laughs> if, yeah, yeah. if I could for the moment. Very helpful. And, and, and just describe what, I, what I'm seeing out there. I, again, I want to say, I think both sides would agree that justified people should pursue a life of justice and righteousness. Now, how we do that, when injustices are at stake, well, there's going to be disagreement over that. Sure. And, and that's what we're feeling at the moment. Okay. Okay. Well, th- this podcast is interested in reclaiming a biblical view of worship, and the Bible seems to be clear in teaching us that our worship of God shouldn't be compartmentalized, but that with all of who we are and in every area of our lives, we should worship God. And so as we've been discussing, it seems like one of the places that this wholesale or this idea of wholesale worship of God seems to get derailed is in the arena of politics. Um, How do you define political, the word political? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I could give you the PhD answer. I don't know that's going to be helpful. I, I worked through that. I worked through that in my dissertation, and then and then and then the kind of published version of that, an earlier book I did. Uh, I mean, typically when people use the word political, what, what what they think is stuff kind of in and around the state, right? Okay. Uh, things stuff in and around the public square by which decisions are made, impacting the entirety of a society, mm-hmm. right? So. Uh, um, you know, other organizations make decisions, but it's the state when it makes decisions, the whole society, the whole nation, the whole city, the whole state, whatever, whatever level we're at 
is impacted by that decision. Yeah. And so politics is about decision making in ways that bind an entire society. That's that's traditionally how it's defined. Now, in, in our American tradition, we tend to think of that as a, as a two party thing: uh, the rulers and the ruled, right, or the, the government and and the citizens. Right. And what we need to remember from a biblical perspective is no, actually, there's 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 three parties. You got to open up the sky and look up. Mm. The Lord God is over all of it. And Jesus mm. saying, you know, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Yeah. Uh, I think Americans too quickly say, render to Caesar what is Caesar, to God what is God. It's almost as if you have two separate non-overlapping circles. One circle, Caesar's things, government, politics, etc. Another circle, God's things, worship, salvation, you know, so forth. Well, think about the context for a moment. How, what does Jesus say? He says, give me a coin. Who's, whose image is on it? And they say Caesar's. Mm-hmm. But of course, any Jew sitting there would have known that Caesar's is in whose image? God's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is to say, rendering to God what is God's includes Caesar. Mm. So you don't, you, don't, you don't have two separate circles, God's things, Caesar's, or Caesar's things. What you have is one big circle, God's things, yeah. and inside of that, a smaller circle, Caesar's things. Mm. And then so, sure enough, Jesus a little bit later says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So when we, when, we, when we go into the public square, when we go to think about politics, you don't leave your religion behind. You don't believe your beliefs in God behind. The public square is not neutral. And it's not just you who don't believe it behind. The atheist doesn't believe their assumptions about God and justice behind. The Muslim, the, the progressivist, the Hindu, the agnostic, everybody steps into the square, the public square, with certain assumptions about how things ought to be, certain assumptions about justice, certain assumptions about God and the universe and the purpose of life and the what is man, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're talking about same-sex marriage, abortion, healthcare, federal funding for national parks. Every decision we make has an assumption of about God. Why? Because uh, politics is part of how we worship. Mm-hmm. Polit- politics is is a device of worship. Yeah. Think think about what you do in front of a king. You bow. Mm-hmm. What, what's bowing? Bow, bowing is a form of worship. Right. Politics is politics is one place where we transact, express our worship. Mm. What what is true? What is righteous? What is good? What is worthy? What is worth ascribing worth to? Right. right. That's that's worship. The old English word for worship, worth skip, mm-hmm. ascribing worth to something. That's that's politics, just like in every area of life. So in one sense, yes, we think of politics as this narrow domain where we make decisions, binding the whole of a public, the whole of a society. But what you got to realize is you can't separate your religion from your politics or your politics or religion. Mm. So do I want church and state to be separate? Absolutely. We can talk about that if you want. But but. Uh, your politics is bigger than what happens in, in the state, and your religion is bigger than what happens in church. Mm-hmm. They, they both influence, impact, and are always overlapping. Right, right. That's great. That's so helpful. So um, the subtitle of your book, Jonathan, is Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. But could we not have easily, uh, just as easily said, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Church? Um, h- how do we bring healing to our churches where politics has brought division? Yeah, great. That's a, that's exactly right. Uh, I, I mean, I remember during the last election, a close friend of mine in another church emailed me and was like, 
our politics, our, our small group keeps talking about politics and we're getting in fights and friendships are on the line. This is just too dangerous. I can't talk about politics anymore. You know, because some people felt like Trump was the savior of America, make America great again. And other people feel like, felt other Christians feel like, no, he's awful. We're compromising our witness. And people took strong sides there and that became divisive in the context of the church. Again, why? Because questions of justice are at stake. Mm. And when Christians find themselves disagreeing over judgments about whether or not if something is just or unjust or a tactic is just or unjust, that's going to be that's going to be divisive. And so it's been in the church as such. So how do we go forward? Well, what? <laughs> that's, that's the purpose of my book. Buy my book today. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I hope to help with that. And, and part of it is like, OK, let's just stop. And. Uh, Ask the question, what is politics and what is its relationship to faith? I was just giving you some of that a few moments ago. Um, uh, And, you know, the question is, okay, what what can churches bind? There's lots of things I could say. I I, I could chase a lot of rabbits here. Here, Here's one thing. Um, Having a good idea of where we can bind a conscience from Scripture and where we should not bind a conscience from scripture, where churches, that is, pastors and churches. Uh, You have straight line issues, you have jagged line issues. Straight line, the Bible is clear. There's a straight line between the Bible and a policy application. Bible, don't murder. Policy application, abortion is wrong. Straight line, bind the conscience there, take a stand. Jagged line, uh, there's multiple considerations, multiple variables, you know, universal healthcare. Uh, You can bring biblical reasoning to bear, but you got to take several bins in the road to come to your conclusion. And, and, and in those places, I don't think the church should bind. Uh, okay, whether or not you should vote for this candidate or that candidate. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, I'm going to make an argument that tends to be on, on the more jagged line side of things. So where the Bible is clear, you know, brother pastors, preach, bind the conscience. But where things are several layers of implication out, I think you need to slow down. And... Uh, Bind yourself, pastors, Christian, to Scripture and bind others only with Scripture, not your own political reasoning. And where brothers and sisters in Christ disagree with you, give them the freedom to do that. Be an advocate for Christian freedom. Be an advocate for differently, Romans 14, calibrated consciences. And that's going to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. And I think when we're not binding where we shouldn't, which is what the Pharisees did, We're going to uphold and protect the gospel. That's good. So that's just one area where I, I, I would talk about. Plenty of others we can get into. Okay. All right. So um, as a Christian who's an American, I feel the tension. I feel the pull between the two citizenships. And so I, it resonates uh-huh. with me when, when folks struggle with this issue. Uh, and I'm even tempted to say the two citizenships of two kingdoms, but you would rather say two ages. So will you help us understand the, yes. your, the point you're making there? Yeah, uh, what what you have there are kind of complex philosophical systems. Two kingdoms started with Martin Luther. He thought he was building on Augustine in some ways his two cities, and in some ways he was building on Augustine's two cities, but he did different stuff with it. And I just, as as a system, I don't think it works really well. I, building on a number of other authors, am endorsing a two-ages perspective. That means we live in two ages simultaneously. We live in the present age, present evil age, that's been ongoing since the fall, right? 
But mm-hmm. as, as Christians, we've been born again into a heavenly and eschatological age where, where, where the end of history comes forward into history now, right? Through, right. The, through the gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. The already, not yet, as, as some theologians call it, right? We already have been born again. We have already been justified, but yet we have not yet been fully saved. Uh, our salvation is not complete, not consummated. So we're living in the overlap of two ages. What the government represents is it's a good and proper and right authority for protecting this present evil age established in Genesis 10. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That authority right there is, is, is a coercive authority governments possess to, to ensure order and peace and, and to provide opportunity for the flourishing of lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a creation, you might say, institution established, established there. In Genesis 10. Uh, the church, however, is a new creation, new covenant institution established uh, for, for, for a number of reasons, uh, among them to, to show humanity, all humanity, what justice looks like, what righteousness looks like, and of course also for making disciples. Right? I should have reversed the order of those two. Making disciples and then demonstrating what a true righteousness and justice looks like. Okay. Um, so you need to give proper credence to both church and state in their respective ages, their respective domains. Great. Okay. Very helpful. That may have been, that may have been more than what you wanted. But. No, no, that's good. That's, that's great. So you mentioned, uh, and we briefly touched on that the fact that you can't keep faith and politics separate. So let me, let me test that just a little bit so you can help give some guardrails here. Yeah. Clarity. Someone says, that's right. I'm going to keep my faith and politics together. We're going to have a 4th of July service, church service, where we're going to wave our flags and shoot off fireworks in the sanctuary. I don't think that's what you're advocating for. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so help us understand. Thank you. Yeah. Help us understand that the faith and politics separate yet not bringing that avenue of country worship into the sanctuary. Yeah, sure. Right. And this, this is precisely where I'm going to say, look, the, these, these realities we call faith and worship, those, those are overlapping. Yeah. In some ways, I would say, I'm sorry, faith and politics, completely overlapping, uh, religion and politics. Church and state are separate institutions uh, in the same way that he's given one authority to me as a father and another authority to me as a citizen, right? Another authority to me as pastor. We, we understand those are separate authorizations I possess. I'm one person. But my authority as a father, my authority as a citizen, my authority as a, as a pastor are distinct God-given grants, right? right? Well, in the same way, God grants one authority to the church, and you get that in Matthew 16, 18, 28, binding and loosing on earth, what's bound and loose in the heaven, the keys of the kingdom, to name true confessions and true confessors. That's the authority of the church. And then you have the authority of the state. That's a separate authority, again, granted in Genesis 10 and kind of elaborated on Romans 13 and other places. And, and the, the holder of the sword, story of the state, mm-hmm. isn't called to wield the keys, binding and loosing, declaring true confessor, true confession. And the holder of the keys, church, isn't called to wield the sword. Mm. And so that means, you know, the, the local church needs to, needs to do the work of the local church and not pretend to be an endorser of the state or do the work of the state. So you have these separate institutions. And so what is, it, what is a gathering of Christians? A gathering of Christians is is people who are united around proclaiming Jesus as king. Mm. And so that means we don't want anybody to show up in our assembly 
and to think, hey, to be a Christian, you have to be an American. Mm. Right. Uh, n- n- nor do we, we want anybody showing up in our assembly thinking, hey, I'm an American. That means I'm basically a Christian. That means I'm good with God, right? Well, we'll, we'll know. So there's a sense in which when you put that American flag on your platform, and I, I understand many churches do that, and you could say there's freedom to do that. I'm not saying you're necessarily sinning. I'm just saying you might be sending a confusing message to your Nigerian and Chinese and Mongolian and Russian friend when they non-Christian friend when they come to church and they see that American flag on the platform. Hmm. Wait, is this is this a gathering of, of Americans? Because if so, I'm sort of second class here. I'm sort of an outsider here. And I want to say to that Nigerian, Mongolian, Chinese, Russian individual, no, you repent and believe and put your trust in Christ and you're one of us. Mm. You're part of the we of Christianity and Christ worshipers. This this is a Christian space, not an American space per se. Now, should we pray for our rulers? Of course we should. We should pray for good and just government. We should give thanks for the goodness we've known as Americans. I love America. I love America history. So I'm, I'm going to be a big celebrator of America. But the Christian space, the, the church gathering, is a distinct thing. And it's where our first identity lies. It's a firm grip, not a loose grip identity. And we want to help our non-Christian neighbors and our uh, uh, you know, of, of different countries, as well as our fellow American Christians who might be confused about what it means to be an American uh, that, you know, makes us, you know, kind of Christian. We're a Christian nation. We want to remove that confusion and be utter clear. No, you're only a Christian. You're faith alone and Christ alone. Mm -hmm. What are some consequences for Christians who invest too much hope in a worldly system and give their worship to man or woman running for office instead of God? Uh, You threaten to undermine the gospel. You, you, you're, you're operating with a, an implicit utopianism, uh, utopianism, the idea that we can bring heaven to earth now, bring utopia now mm-hmm. uh, through the work that we do and uh, that we can remove the curse by our actions. Okay. Okay. And I, 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 when, when, we, when we have a, when we put our actions in the public square ahead of disciple making ministry. Um, or do anything with too many exclamation points, too many all cap sentences, too much panic, too much fear. But we act as if Jesus promised that he will build his church. We act as if that's not true. Mm. You know, remember that America is an experiment. Yeah. Uh, the church is not. It is certain. So that's where our, our, our true hope and energy needs to, our, our, our first hope and energy needs to lie. Jonathan, I heard the conversation on your book you had with Mark Dever in, in your podcast that y'all do together. In that, you talked about a moral vocabulary in American civic conversation. So can you explain what you mean and, and how we teach this to <clears throat> children? Yeah, sure. Part of your discipleship or disciple making and discipleship as a pastor, church leader, or as just as a Christian, as a parent, is, is uh, bringing the, the the assurance of the lordship of Christ in all of life, into all of life, right, including in the public square. Right. But the trouble is, in the public square tonight, today, in the American tradition, there's only kind of three values, and in many ways they're Trojan horse values. Three values that you're allowed to talk about: moral values, freedom, equality, rights, right, and, and views of justice. What is justice? Well, justice is whatever yields those three things. The, the, the challenge of those three things, of course, is that who gets to define equality? 
Who gets to define rights? Mm-hmm. Who gets to define freedom? Free, freedom to abort my baby? Mm. M- marriage equality? Uh, the, the right to define my own gender? Mm-hmm. Well, well, who answers that? Well, in the American tradition, there's, there's, there's nothing behind it. Everybody gets to define those things, which is to say everybody's God. This, here's the Trojan horse. Mm. Those three words function like Trojan horses because it's my gods hiding inside the Trojan horse that are going to come out and going to define right, right, you know, right to choose, right, right. to define my own gender, for freedom, freedom to uh, or equality of, of marriage between same sex or, or heterosexual marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the challenge is we, we as Christians need to know how to disciple our children to understand, again, Jesus' lordship in that domain, which means we need a larger moral vocabulary than just freedom, rights, equality, mm. you see? Yeah. Um, and to help our, our, our children understand the nature of true justice, as it's described in Scripture, and how true justice, as it's described in Scripture, needs to come to bear. So I want a just freedom. I want a just rights. I want a just equality. I want those things, but I want them to be just. And well, who gets to define just? Well, God does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there's no, there's no, there's no God's justice, and then some other good mm. version of justice. Right. No, there's only God's justice and injustice. Those are your two options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to disciple our children, and I hope my book is useful that for that, especially say with high schoolers and college students. Um, it's useful for those purposes. So helpful. Thank you. Well, Jonathan, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today and thinking uh, and, and helping us think through these these issues that are so hard to grasp for, for so many of us like me. Uh, and, and I think what you have said here uh, will prove to be extremely helpful to the church. So, brother, I really appreciate all your help. Oh, thank you, Jason. It was a good conversation. Appreciate your questions. Jonathan's book's titled How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. I will have a link to this book in my show notes at reclamationworship.com. I would encourage you to pick this book up and read it and to think deeply about faith and politics. Visit reclamationworship.com to hear other episodes that have been recorded. In the upcoming episodes, you'll hear from Greg Gilbert, pastor at Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Greg and I had an opportunity to talk about worship through evangelism. You're also going to hear from John Anwu Chekwa, pastor at Cornerstone Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're going to be talking about worship through corporate prayer. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. Reclamation Worship is on Twitter at ReclamationHQ. And we're also on Instagram at Reclamation Worship. 